So there's a choice that an adversarial country would have to make. Do they want to maximize destruction to satellites, in which case just try to get a nuke sort of above 85 kilometers to a level, and it doesn't have to be over the continental United States, could be just about anywhere, and that'll affect an entire band of satellites that eventually orbit through that area. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, and welcome back. There's been a lot of talk about nuclear weapons. This isn't normal, and this episode is not meant to normalize it. But we do need to talk about the what-ifs in the space domain. Here's where we're at on the ground. Russia keeps threatening to use its nuclear arsenal to further its illegal invasion of Ukraine. Earlier this month, North Korea sent a nuclear-capable missile over Japan. And did you know that launch was the 23rd such weapons test since the start of this year? And China. It's like... Like, what else can you say? Xi Jinping seems rational, but after years and years of aggressive actions, aggressive diplomacy, and promises made to a domestic population fed a steady diet of grievance messaging over Taiwan, now the U.S. Navy's chief of operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, is saying China may attempt to take Taiwan in the next few months. Now, if we assume these nations are led by rational actors who don't want to walk through the door into Armageddon, instead, just knock on it. There is an option in space. It's called high-altitude nuclear detonation. To understand how it works, if the U.S. is prepared to deter it, and what should be done to mitigate against its effects, I reached out to Lieutenant Colonel Tony Vincent, the Director of Advanced Physics Courses at the Air Force Academy, and to Chris Stone, a Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute. Here's our conversation. Hi, Tony. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Laura. Thanks very much. You know, before we jump into the science, the current state of play, and what Tony prescribes as a way forward for deterring our adversaries, let's do some introductions. And as this is your first time on the podcast, Tony, why don't you start? Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Tony Vincent. I'm currently assigned to the Air Force Academy. And our primary mission is developing leaders of character. And within that, my task here is to teach physics to um, to our cadets through a variety of classes. Right now, I'm teaching electricity and magnetism. Last semester, I taught a class on nuclear weapons engineering. And Chris, you're a regular, but take a moment to introduce yourself to the new folks. Sure. I'm Christopher Stone. I'm the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in Washington, D.C. area. I uh, write on things related to the Space Force, uh, deterrence, warfighting, U.S. Space Command, things of that sort. And uh, as you've mentioned numerous times before, I also have authored numerous articles and a book called Reversing the Dow, a framework for credible space deterrence that's been out for a few years now. Tony, you recently wrote an article that was published on the War on the Rocks website about the threat and risks of high-altitude nuclear detonation. 
I don't want to assume. So could you explain what prompted you to write this article now? Well, uh, the genesis for writing about this topic is uh, based on my experience in the nuclear enterprise with research and development and uh, just seeing how our our historic approach to this threat space that we've known about for several decades, uh, but then also keeping in mind how we're becoming more and more dependent on constellations of commercial satellites that are um, being sent into low Earth orbit. And so the threat has been known for a while, and we've you know had some sort of a strategy that involved you know projects here and there, and then a lot of uh, hope that other countries don't view this as a as a favorable target. Um, but we can't deny that we're becoming more and more dependent on informational products we're getting from uh, these satellites that are placed into various orbits. So I thought now was the right time to to try to take a look at what we've been doing and make some recommendations on how we can mitigate the threat against nukes on um, placed into high altitude. And Tony, as you are the physicist in this discussion, just what is high altitude nuclear detonation or hand? You know, how does this work and how high is actually high? (laughs) That's a great point. So, um, you, we generally think of high altitude as being, uh, with regards to a nuclear detonation, as being some altitude high enough that you don't destroy things on the ground with the shock wave. Now, that l- creates a little bit of ambiguity when we think about the effects of it. So, you know, one effect we could get out of a nuclear weapon is what's called an electromagnetic pulse. And that would be detonated at a high altitude, meaning something like the stratosphere or the next layer, which is called the mesosphere. Um, And that would essentially propagate that EMP for the desired effect of shutting down um, targeted electronics. Now, there's not really a hard transition to the next layer, but if you keep getting higher than that, and let's draw some kind of fictitious line at about 85 kilometers. If I'm above 85 kilometers, then we start getting into a region of different effects. And so if we detonate a thermonuclear, you know, large scale, say megaton type device in now what's the beginning of what we call the ionosphere, then um, we're not going to have quite the same effect with EMP on the ground. It'll still be there. But what we're primarily doing at that altitude is throwing a bunch of charged particles out through various interactions directly and then with the upper atmosphere that then get trapped in Earth's magnetic field. And when we throw particles into that field, that's what we call the Van Allen radiation belts. As you've just mentioned, the Van Allen belts, while space operators are likely familiar with this area, I got to tell you, most people are not. Where are the Van Allen belts and what also makes them so special? Like, you know, if it's 85 kilometers and up, but up to where? Well, there's not a there's not a smooth transition, or there's not a um, I'm sorry, a, a finite transition. It is smooth, so they extend quite a bit outwards. And what's happening is um, the Earth is what we call a living planet. So we have these magnetic fields that are generated from the mantle spinning about a metallic core. 
And uh, so as you go further out, um, let's say now we're in the region of uh, medium or middle Earth orbit where GPS lies. That's now in the heart of the Van Allen radiation belts. And so those satellites will face about 100 times uh, more charged particles that they're colliding with at that altitude versus low Earth orbit, which is much closer to Earth say something below a thousand kilometers. And don't the Van Allen belts have like a special mechanism that is able to protect us here on the living planet uh, from the radiation? Yeah, that's correct. So we can thank the the earth for having this wonderful magnetic field every day. And so what earth's magnetic field is doing is essentially sweeping charged particles away from the earth. So I like to tell my students, it's sort of like the karate kid wax on wax off. The magnetic field is pushing those particles out of the way. And then they get trapped in those magnetic field lines and they start bouncing back and forth. And sometimes they leak into the atmosphere. That's where we get the Aurora Borealis uh, in the Northern hemisphere. And so every day, the Van Allen radiation belts represent particles getting trapped there versus um, slamming into the earth and radiating us with um, a lot more intensity than what we get every day. So it's one of the factors that makes life on earth a little bit easier than if we did not have that. And it also makes life a bit easier for space operators who are operating in low earth orbit, whether it be a space station or uh, all these satellites like Starlink, et cetera, that are going there. There's just a lot less radiation that they have to deal with these, these operators and their stuff uh, because of these Van Allen belts. Am I correct there? Oh, you're right. So there, there is more radiation in low Earth orbit uh, than here, you know, just sitting at my desk on Earth. But there's still a noticeable amount of, uh, of sweeping effect uh, that they're seeing. So think of that as about a factor of 100, roughly. So the astronauts at the International Space Station are getting about 100 times less dose from charged particles than they would be if they were out at the GPS range. And so what that does is it allows it, it, it it's sort of tantalizing in a way that we can build satellites um, using products that we have here on Earth just sitting on the shelf, put them into low Earth orbit. It's a bit more radiation, but not quite enough where it's obvious that we need to design to that extra level of radiation. So that's got to make these satellites that operate and, and also, the, you know, the components that go to the space station a bit more less expensive than those things that are going into higher orbits. Do we have a concrete idea of how much of a savings the Van Allen belt provides? Well, it's it's hard to quantify exactly as that changes over time. But what I what I was exposed to when I was working at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency on on nuclear type topics was that it's about a factor of 10, sometimes maybe up to a factor of 100 to try to take a piece of an electrical component and harden that so that it can withstand higher doses of radiation. And so when we take components off the shelf that are designed for Earth, which is a much lower radiation environment, um, that are more affordable to buy, but then they can potentially be smaller and lighter, which then affects the cost of space launch. 
So we actually do know then what happens if there is a nuclear detonation in the Van Allen belts. Uh, there's actually a history to this. Uh, who wants to give the history of Starfish Prime? Chris, do you want to have a go at that? Sure, I'll, I'll give a start, and then if uh, if the doctor wants to throw in a little bit, that's that's fine. So back in the early Cold War period of the 1950s, um, we were looking at how to find all the advantages we could out of nuclear power and nuclear weapons, given that was sort of the the way of the future. And uh, so we would test nuclear weapons in various environments to see how they would impact uh, ships at sea, under the sea, in the air, and they even did uh, in space, which Starfish Prime was was one of those examples. And what they did was is they they fired a, a weapon into uh, low space and they detonated it, and it created uh, charged particles uh, throughout the, the Van Allen belts and impacted. Uh, not only satellites in space, which back then there weren't as many as there are now, um, so the damage was was minimal to to life on Earth at that point, uh, everyday life. And uh, but there was even some impacts felt uh, on Earth with some of of the electronics and things of that sort due to the atmospheric effects that were also generated as well as in space. So, Starfish Prime was kind of one of the catalysts for atmospheric test ban treaties and comprehensive test ban treaties as they started to see that you know testing you know while helpful to understand could provide some risks that people decided they just would rather get out of modeling and simulation than actual testing. And Tony? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll just add that uh, the Starfish Prime test was the first uh, thermonuclear device that we had tested in space. There had been a few other lower yield ones at about the, let's say, the 10 to 20 kiloton range. But this was the first, you know, sort of monster nuclear weapon in space. And it surprised everyone with the fact that it added a lot more electrons to the Van Allen belts. And so that was an unexpected result that really they could only get from testing. And it shows the importance of, of testing during this time period. So it's not something we have to go back and, and think about whether our models are, are highly accurate. We actually did this test and we found that it added a lot more charged particles um, into this region of space. And that ended up uh, taking out about a third of the satellites that were um, that were on orbit at the time. That, as Chris said, there weren't nearly as many as there are now, but still, 33% of all satellites experienced some kind of level of damage, including uh, Telstar, the first commercial communication satellite that was actually launched the day after uh, the Starfish Prime test occurred. So Telstar was just flying through the residual radiation of it, and that eventually damaged the electronics um, over the course of the next eight months. So if such a weapon were used now, it would be, well, I mean, would we say that it, it could take out at least a third of, of satellites, at least in low Earth orbit, or are we talking something of a higher order? Well, I, I I think we could start with a factor of a third and then, you know, potentially increase that number um, as we think about the trend of just using commercial electronics components and the variety of, you know, of these cheaper small satellites um, in our quest to save money. But we're also becoming more dependent on the products they give us. So it could be a larger um, factor than just a third. And then the effect on the economy would be, anyone want to guess? 
Well, I would say catastrophic uh, for our economy. Uh, we're becoming, um, at least the United States, as the primary investor in, in space assets, um, is reaping a large economic uh, product. So every year it's increasing. Um, right now we're at about a $2 billion a year profit. That's, that's just profit from our space platforms. Um, and we're, that proportion is the, the proportion of our dependence on LEO satellites, low Earth orbiting ones, is, is getting greater and greater. And I'll just add also, if, if it was a lower detonation, still within you know, low Earth orbital space, um, but within enough range of the atmosphere, there have been reports that indicated that depending on where the detonation occurred, like say if it detonated over Chicago, there could be as much as 70% of the uh, electrical grid could be destroyed across the country with very limited leftovers. So that could not only impact satellites in space, which already has catastrophic impact on economics, but the way of life itself could be damaged if it was lower and low enough to have that atmospheric impact on ground electronics as well. I think this is an important point to think about, which are the mixed effects of, you know, what is it you want to target with a nuclear weapon? And so if if the intent is to shut down the, the power grid on the United States, then that um, the detonation of that should be below the ionosphere because the ionosphere with all those charged particles will do a fairly decent job of shielding the EMP. So there's a choice that an adversarial country would have to make. Do they want to maximize destruction to satellites, in which case just try to get a nuke sort of above 85 kilometers to a level, and it doesn't have to be over the continental United States, could be just about anywhere, and that'll affect an entire band of satellites that eventually orbit through that area. Versus now what I think is a harder problem of delivering a nuke over the continental United States, and then ensuring that you're low enough that you're not having a lot of loss uh, for the EMP due to the ionosphere. So I think that's I think that's a choice that an adversary would have to make. What what output do they want to try to optimize for the damage that they're trying to create? Now if we were just going to take the output of say, you know, taking out satellites. And Chris, you've written extensively on this subject. Who's actually interested in fielding these weapons and what's the actual point? I'm asking that because it would seem to me that if a nation state used such a weapon now with, you know, two space stations and so many satellites and nations benefiting from space, that if a regime targeted the Van Allen belts, they'd have no allies left after everyone's stuff on orbit gets fried and turns into space junk. It just feels like a really stupid move. Yeah, the the thing to to think about as as the uh, as our guest mentioned before is the fact that it depends on what you're trying to target and what your effects are able to do. The other thing to think about is what is your technological capability? What can you do? So some countries like the Chinese and Russians have pretty good technology to be able to do counter space operations without using electromagnetic pulse. And they could still achieve their objectives. They're, you know, they can they can generate a lot of debris. They could they could use electro electronic warfare assets, directed energy, all sorts of different stuff. But other countries, um, like North Korea, for example, 
doesn't quite have that kind of capability. So while most people consider uh, the Chinese and Russians are are two primary great power competitors to be unlikely to use EMP, I would just say I I would say unlikely doesn't mean impossible. And it depends on what kind of blackmail they're trying to achieve. If it's blackmail, it's like hey, if you don't stop interfering in our operation, we will you know do do great damage to your country's infrastructure um, or things of that sort. And if the country also, I might add, if if they're not as reliant upon space systems for their day to day operation, like a North Korea then they would probably be less worried about the impact because they're already isolated from the international order, so to speak. They have very few allies. And so that's one thing that the North Koreans could leverage for their their concept of deterrence and their, their level of technology is they could launch um, an EMP into orbit. They've, according to EMP commission reports and other people who have studied their activities, and the activities of the of the Chinese and Russians, that there is a way to put things into a fractional orbit or an or full orbit and then deorbit EMP weapons to the altitude needed for detonation. And the North Koreans, that's pretty much all the all the counter space activity they could probably achieve in the near term is launching up into space and detonating to create problems. So um that's kind of where we are with with that at this point. I just got to ask, because this is a question that's that's been rolling around in my head. I mean, if North Korea were to do this, I mean, are they technologically advanced enough? Sorry about my pronunciation there. But are they, you know, far enough into this that they could detonate such a weapon without actually affecting Chinese assets? Because China really is their big brother. It is their their way into and out of any kind of economy. And well, their people kind of don't have a lot of food. So it just seems, again, like a stupid move. But can well, they, it, would they do that? Well, the, the idea in, in the scenarios looked at, at least by me, is that they would do it more to harm the United States terrestrially than it would be to to do a lot of damage in space. The technological uh, achievement they've been able to show by their long-range missiles show that they have the ability to reach the altitudes and distances, and they have achieved orbit on a number of occasions of various things. Whether those those vehicles are actually uh, actually functioning or not doesn't really matter. the The fact is is that they can launch uh, these kinds of capabilities, and a lot of people who have a lot bigger and a lot better background than I do on the nuclear physics. Um, say that it's that they do have the capability with what fissile material they have in their their recent experience. I'll also add from the rocket um, you know standpoint, most of the missiles that have been recovered by the by, by our allies, such as the Japanese, when they fly over um, their 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 territory, as we saw in, a few months ago, um, most of those components are made in China and Russia. Um, they do get a lot of help from those two countries. But they've also been been working hard to try to create their own indigenous capacity to be able to hold targets at risk as part of their own their own viewpoint of of what deterrence is. Yep, I was going to add that um, with regards to detonating a nuclear weapon in space, there's no such thing as a precision output. So there will be a, a local area that gets the the immediate prompt effects of that being X-rays, electromagnetic pulse, other particles. But when a lot of the charged uh, particles from the atmosphere are dumped then into that orbit band, it gets everything. You know, the, that's the thing about satellites is they're constantly sweeping out, you know, through their orbit. So if we create a hotspot 
that persists after the detonation, the other satellites are going to make it through that higher radiation zone at some point, right, based on their, their altitude. So if somebody were to, were to do this, say, North Korea, it's really a scorched earth sort of approach that represents um, desperation at that level. So it would harm not only China's satellites, but all satellites. Now, an interesting um, proportionality there, though, is that China is, is much lower on the investment um, ladder than other countries. So the proportion of their GDP into space assets is a lot lower than the U.S., Russia, France, Saudi Arabia, and several other countries. And it's growing. I mean, each of those countries' investment are growing. And like you said, it, it would be more out of what we would call desperation. The main thing to keep in mind when you're talking about these seemingly unthinkable type of situations is the fact that um, while we are advocates in the international system of what we call responsible behavior, um, and our idea of what is impossible or irresponsible may not necessarily reflect what's considered logical and reasonable to another country, especially countries that have very unique cultural differences and mixtures of, of governing structures. North Korea, I chose for my research just because of its its definite uniqueness to to the rest of the of the world, especially the western side of, of the world. So their idea of deterrence is more of a an aggressive approach, similar to the Chinese, where they're if they see a threat, they'll go out and attack it. But most seem to think that if the North Koreans were to use some sort of capability like this, it would be out of a sort of uh, you know, desperation, as as you said, Tony, but also a, a standpoint of how do we defend ourselves and our existence? Because one of the main reasons uh, for the for the military in North Korea is to preserve the survivability of the regime and, and the country. So if they thought that somebody was going to come annihilate them, which they always like to say, even though that's never been part of our plan, um, then they would probably say, hey, now is the time to, to do that. And there are a lot of people who have been concerned with Kim Jong-un and his um, seemingly unstable, unstable uh, ways of doing things. So how do we even deter this? I mean, what sort of deterrence measures do we have in place and, and what would even be our response? I know a, a relatively new NATO space policy states that such an attack could trigger an Article 5 action. Well, I'll begin. Um, if you want to add something, Tony, feel free. Um, in my writing, in, in, in my thinking, um, these are one of those types of situations that I call a tier one deterrence scenario, where in the Chinese and, and in the North Korean way, they kind of combine space and nuclear into what they call strategic operations. And so because of that, you have to basically hit them before they hit you. And so one of the ways I argued is to take a, a page out of the Chinese book, and if they're going to launch something that into orbit, for example, um, that will or into space for even a, just a detonation, you want to have the ability to intercept it. So my scenario was they put something in orbit and before it can overfly the United States and create damage, you need to intercept it over, over the Pacific before they can detonate the actual, actual device. That's the best way in my mind is to take it out that way. That way you're not hitting their soil per se, but you're also not letting it, it fully manifest itself in an operation. Um, other than that, you're pretty much you know, kind of stuck with, with trying to threaten them with, with, with retaliation. And that in some ways, some people think it may not impact them and others think it, it's just fine. It'll be sufficient, but there, but there is debate on that. 
So we do have a deterrence measure in place? I I don't know of one, but it doesn't mean we don't. Um, I would say that when I wrote the paper of, of mine in 2017, that uh, I wasn't aware of any type of capability that's deployed that's able to take out such a system. I argued for using um, technology experiences that we've had with missile defense um, that we used, like the the burnt frost situation we used back in 08 to take out a, a low-flying errant satellite, keep it from dropping a bunch of hydrazine on on folks, um, that we could leverage that given the fact that most of the North Korean orbits are very, very low. Like they, they're there, they're still in orbit. They've launched a couple. Some of them didn't quite make it, but these are, are low enough that they're they're easily uh, shootable with, with similar technology with that and or systems that we tested in the 80s, dropping them from F-15s, which are not currently available. But, but the sea-based missile defenders, you know, possibly could be adjusted. But right now, I'm not aware of anything that we've said declaratory, like, hey, this is a deterrent against this kind of activity. And I think to the author's point, Tony, here is that we need to get after this threat that while it may be unlikely and it may be unthinkable, doesn't mean that it won't happen and that that we shouldn't be ready for it. And Tony, to that, you you did lay out some specific ideas on how we, the United States, and perhaps the rest of the democracies should approach this. Can you go through that for us? Right. And so I was thinking along the lines of a complementary deterrence to, to defeat. So de- defeat can be a, a rather difficult problem, especially when you're talking about things going as fast as, uh, as missiles. Um, so if we can show that we can survive at least for a, a larger proportion of our assets than if we took no approach, then that in itself, I think, is a deterrence. And it takes some of the some of the juice out of the squeeze when an adversarial nation is, is thinking about using such a catastrophic event as a nuke in space. So the the traditional approach that we've tried is is just hardening. And when I say hardening, I mean radiation hardening, making our electronics more resilient to increased levels of radiation. And I think that's um, a bit too myopic of an approach if we want to if we want to take this threat more serious and buy down risk. So I, I think the first thing we need to realize is that hardening is not going to become a commercial standard until the cost and the size and weight of that come down to a level that's comparable to what we're already getting from commercial off-the-shelf components. So we're, we're unlikely, I think, to, um, uh, to mandate a certain level of radiation hardness. So therefore, we should try a few other things as well. Um, acknowledging the dependency we have on our commercial products. And so the the first thing that I recommend is just being aware of the radiation environment out there. And so if we developed a suite of radiation sensors uh, that mapped out swaths of low Earth orbit, um, then we would be aware of where these radiation hotspots are if such an event were to happen. Now, those hotspots will kind of drift and spread out over time. But even if that takes days, that's still several passes of each satellite asset through that area of higher radiation. And then what do you do with that information? Well, if we need to figure out how to send that information of hotspots um, to other satellite operators, whether that's satellite to satellite directly or back to, you know, base to then, you know, have a decision on should we take evasive maneuvers, meaning a change of orbit? What if an asset just powered down through a period of time 
as it was going through an area of higher radiation. That would that's something that could increase survivability. Third, uh, this is getting a little bit into emerging technology here, but it looks like it, it might be possible, at least theoretically, to remove some of these excess charged particles from orbit. And so the Air Force Research Laboratory had a, had a um, project on this that was just launched a couple of years ago. And it's about essentially leaking charged particles out of these Van Allen belts back into the atmosphere. So if we could do that over the course of months, then that might be the difference between Telstar, as our example, um, surviving instead of uh, decaying over the course of eight months. And then we really need to continue radiation hardening, but our focus should, in, in my opinion, be on trying to make that more commercially available. So uh, all of the various components that go into satellites, um, thinking about how do we subsidize um, that effort so that more commercial companies can afford to get into uh, the hardening game and build that into their into their system. And then finally, we've been spreading this out over different organizations, and I think it's about time we recognize the importance of this threat and that if we can take these various projects and create a portfolio and put that under one roof with one government lead, then I think we'll be able to realize some synergy of effort rather than having this distributed approach without a whole lot of engagement between projects. And I'll just throw in a little bit here. I, I agree totally with all of those those things that you propose. The one thing that I will say based on your question, Laura, is there's a difference between defense measures such as damage limitation, which is most of what, what, what you were talking about, Tony, is damage limitations. And a lot of that was has been mandated numerous times, either by legislation or executive order, but because of the cost, and because people like to throw that in the pile of it's not going to happen, it's unlikely. So we'll we'll deal with the risks that are more near term that they really haven't gone too far into that because of the cost, like, like you mentioned. Um, there are some folks that are trying to work on some technological advancements to try to find ways to protect, um, shutting down the systems as they pass through uh, are things that have happened with natural events, such as uh, storming that comes out of the sun, solar radiation that comes out in big bursts. And, and there have been natural uh, circumstances where things have been impacted back before we were very satellite dependent, such as the Carrington event that happened in the 1800s, where um, a bunch of telegraph wires were sparking and exploding and things on Earth, even just because of the of the atmosphere being charged up. And so I would I would mention that. Um, the other thing I would mention is, is if you're going to deter, which was, the I think, your question, is you have to put something that that makes them pause, that that makes them afraid, and that is either in a proactive measure. In the case of, of of countries like North Korea, you might have to think that way, and in other countries, you might be able to deal with a, a retaliatory threat of some kind. And so, I preferred in my argument to have an ability to to mitigate the threat by actively by shooting it out of the sky or intercepting the missile before it gets to its point of detonation. Um, that would require a lot of intelligence, though, to be able to know what exactly is on top of the thing, uh, because a lot of their missiles have had duds for testing, um, and it's very difficult to do that. So that would require a lot of intelligence to to protect ourselves against that, and also hardening our infrastructure on Earth as well as in space, like you mentioned, Tony. And that takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment, and I think that's something that we should definitely be looking into a lot more seriously. That's all the time we have for this 
So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks very much, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.